So this talk um, will be called a dry shit stick. <laughs> but before we get on to that, I'd like to start with a, um, uh, an account of the enlightenment of the second patriarch of the Zen tradition. And I don't mean Chinese patriarch, but Indian patriarch. And that was the uh, attendant and close disciple and cousin, younger cousin, of the Buddha called Ananda, or Ananda. And um, he received, according to the Zen tradition, a transmission from Mahakasapa or Mahakasyapa, um, who was the first patriarch. Now, whether or not this lineage is something that we can um, believe in as having literally occurred, one person handing it on to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, until it comes down to us today, I think that's fairly unlikely. Um, modern scholarship shows that these long lists of lineages are in fact full of holes but I think nonetheless the idea of lineage as a continuity of, of narratives of stories, of experiences of encounters that have survived through the course of the centuries from 5th century BC India until today I think is, um, is a very inspiring idea, one that connects what we're doing in this room during this retreat with what has gone on for hundreds of years um, throughout China, Korea, and all the way back into India. So in that sense, I think lineage is a, an almost equivalent, really, to the idea of tradition, that we're part of something that precedes us in time, and yet we are thereby connected uh, to a line or a community of people who have um, cherished similar values and aspirations as we have, and have applied themselves in comparable ways and have expressed that understanding, those insights uh, which have survived either through texts or through oral tradition or through art, um, through myth and other narratives that have come down to us. So Ananda was... Um, probably about um, 20 years younger than the Buddha. And he would have uh, joined the community when the Buddha would have been about 50. He would have been, oh no, Buddha would have been, yeah, Buddha would have been about 50, I think. He would have been about 25, 30. We're not quite sure. In any case, um, there's a passage uh, in the Sanyutta Nikaya that in which Ananda himself recalls the um, teaching that led to his, uh, his, his, his uh, initial insight. In Zen, we'd perhaps call this a breakthrough, satori. In the early tradition, it's called stream entry. Now, Ananda's uh, preceptor, or his initial teacher, was not actually the Buddha. But it was a man who's very, about which nothing really is known, a man called Punga Mantani Putta. So when Ananda, as a young man, joined the Buddhist order, he was put under the care of Punga Mantani Putta. And later, when he himself, Ananda himself, had uh, disciples and followers, he recalled what um, Punga Mantani Putta had told him that led to his first genuine insight or, or breakthrough. 
And this is what Punga Mantani Putta said. It is by clinging, Ananda, that I am occurs, not without clinging. It is by clinging to form, feelings, perceptions, inclinations, and consciousness that I am occurs, not without clinging. Suppose a young man or woman, youthful and fond of ornaments, would examine her own facial image in a mirror or in a bowl filled with pure, clean water. She would look at it with clinging, not without clinging. So too, it is by clinging to form, to feelings, to perceptions, to inclinations and to consciousness that I am occurs, not without clinging. So Ananda's uh, understanding arose through gaining an insight into um, the, uh, the origins of egotism. I think it's clear from this passage that uh, the, the idea of I am is not being uh, used here simply to refer to our ordinary, everyday uh, sense of, of, of me, of I. You know, I'm sitting here and you're sitting there. You know, I am um, Stephen, you are Joe. It's not that kind of I am. That's purely normative how people communicate, how language works, how we get around in the world. And we'll find um, in the Pali Canon and elsewhere, the Buddha has no problem using the first person singular in reference to himself. In fact, he has no problem using the word atta, self, as something entirely non-problematic. It's just how we talk about this organism with its history and its wishes and aspirations and fears as opposed to that organism over there. There's nothing problematic in the notion of I am. So what's being addressed here is um, a rather more um, intense form of I am, which is illustrated by the example of a young person, a rather vain young person, looking in a mirror um, and, um, and seeing their own reflection. And that then somehow enhancing or intensifying um, leading to a sort of indulgence in that sense of me. Now, of course, in, in Western culture, uh, this is the, the myth of Narcissus. Narcissus is the young god who peers into the pool of water, again like here, and falls in love with his own image. So the kind of I am that Ananda saw through was uh, the I am of the narcissist, the person who's infatuated and obsessed with their own image. And again, I think, as we'll see, it's not just a, the physical image, but our own self-image, our psychological uh, attachment to being me. It's possible and there are suggestions elsewhere in the canon that Ananda himself may have been a rather attractive young man at this point. And in this case, uh, perhaps his teacher is referring to something that Ananda himself was prone to, namely a kind of narcissistic vanity. But I think for us, the term narcissism has become... Um, uh, a, uh, an idea that is not only utilized in popular culture, but also is understood as a, a personality disorder, a not narcissistic personality disorder, um, which is, um, you know, a, a dysfunction um, that uh, causes um, all kinds of problems uh, socially, 
personally, and so on. And I think it's quite um, striking, actually, that in this uh, very old Buddhist text, which would have known nothing of the Greek myth, nonetheless appeals to the same uh, metaphor. But if we unpack this a little bit further, it seems to suggest that this narcissistic tendency um, is built into the very structure of what it is to be human. And this is suggested in, the, uh, in, in this listing of form, feelings, perceptions, inclinations, consciousness, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. These are called the five aggregates or the five bundles, the five khanda, which are the Buddha's way of, 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 of describing or parsing uh, human experience. There is the uh, form, which refers to what we see here, smell, taste, touch, refers to our body, uh, feelings, which have to do with that whole spectrum from pleasure through to pain, has to do with perception, how we make sense of the world, has to do with inclination, how we're constantly poised or involved in, in thinking or speaking or doing something, and consciousness itself, in other words, our overall awareness of being who we are in the world in which we find ourselves. So what's being uh, uh, pointed to here is that once those khandas are somehow inflected by upadana, clinging, then the world becomes essentially um, a, 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 a hall of mirrors in which all you see is yourself. And by world here, I don't mean just the outside world, but also our own inner life. In fact, the, uh, in, in Pali, they often, uh, not only in Pali, but in the classical Buddhist languages, they talk of the panch upadana kanda, the five uh, bundles or aggregates of clinging. In other words, uh, uh, this clinging, this holding on, this grasping, this tightening around our sense of self is um, activated through an ongoing uh, experience of life in which um, everything is reflected in terms of me and my wants and me and my fears and me and my um, ambitions and so forth and so on. So it's pointing to uh, a sense of life um, in which we are really all that matters. And when we sit in meditation uh, and just notice what's going on, it can sometimes uh, appear rather vividly, in a rather disconcerting way actually, that our entire experience is basically an endless and frankly rather tedious monologue around me. So the um, experience that's being described and the experience that Ananda somehow woke up to at this point was how uh, life uh, as a human uh, being is, is profoundly uh, self-centered. So how do we you know, deal with this? How do we work with this? If it is actually structurally built in to the system, then is there really even a way out? Um, or is there an openness, is there a space, is there a possibility in this same experience in which we can, you know, perhaps just in becoming aware of that uh, incessant self-reference, that in itself um, is the first uh, crack, the first opening that allows us to uh, begin to disentangle ourselves from those obsessive thoughts. In other words, by becoming uh, in a rather more contemplative or somewhat detached way, 
conscious of this self-referencing, that in itself is the first step to take a certain uh, 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 distance from self-referencing itself. But the, the tragedy of such a uh, self-centered existence um, is that in seeing oneself reflected back in everything um, makes it quite difficult to actually empathize uh, with others. I remember it was either on the radio or in a movie somewhere, a uh, comedy, uh, I hasten to add, in which there's a couple and they're looking in, in, into each other's eyes and um, they're in love, presumably. And the woman um, says, what do you see when you look into my eyes? And the man replies, two perfect little reflections of myself. <laughs> Now, that's supposed to be a joke, but at the same time, like most good jokes, it actually contains a rather disturbing element of truth. And it illustrates, I think, this rather well. And the, the consequences of, of such a, um, uh, a, a view is that um, in, in, in being increasingly incapable of genuine empathy, um, we also suffer from a kind of spiral of alienation, feeling cut off from others in the world, uh, feelings of loneliness and feelings of despair. Now these terms, alienation, loneliness and despair, you don't find um, equivalence really in classical Buddhist texts. The, this is very much the language of modernity, the language of um, you know, the modern individualistic uh, secular society in which we, we live today and which has been evolving and developing over the last couple of hundred years. But clearly the, uh, the, the psychological or the existential roots of this kind of alienation were already present and already uh, of great concern uh, to someone like the Buddha. And he uses a term to describe this. Uh, it's not a term that occurs very often. A term which in Pali is kila, K-H-I-L-A, and it, it literally means um, aridity, aridity, barrenness, arid, uh, an arid place is one in which nothing grows, a barren place. And uh, the Buddha understands this aridity as another way of describing the uh, state of, uh, of isolation and cut-offness and self-absorption that the practice of the Dhamma is seeking to uh, overcome and resolve. And there, are, um, there is one discourse, um, middle-length discourse number 16, which is called the, the uh, Chitta Kila Sutta, the discourse on the aridity of the heart. And a person who suffers um, aridity is a person who is paralyzed by doubts about, in the classical Buddhist language, the, uh, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Uh, these three are often thought of as the sort of primary uh, objects of refuge in Buddhism, but I think in a non-religious reading of this uh, text, they refer, I think, to one's core values. In other words, the value of being awake, the Buddha, the value of uh, practicing and following a way, a path, a way of life, uh, the Dhamma, 
and a commitment to uh, a sense of community, of belonging to a network of, of friendships and relationships that support you and sustain you in your practice of becoming awake. A person who is, uh, suffers from aridity is one who has somehow uh, not uh, been able or, or resists uh, making a commitment in their life to go beyond their self-centeredness. But also, um, the Buddha continues to explain, uh, such aridity is expressed as feelings of anger, and displeasure towards one's companions, is the phrase he uses. In other words, again, it's a, an image of, um, of loneliness, of, of being unable somehow to connect, um, and of feeling frustrated by others. Others seem to get in one's way. Perhaps in the Satrian sense of hell is other people. Uh, the other people you know, uh, somehow inhibit and prevent one from fulfilling one's own desires. It seems to suggest that. Uh, so that's one way in which uh, aridity is understood. Um, a, a hesitation or a reluctance to uh, commit oneself to a path, to a way of life, to a community, to um, you know, a spiritual goal, if you wish. And such a state is one where nothing grows. I think this is the, the key to this idea of aridity. Nothing grows, nothing flourishes. You're kind of cut off. You're literally somehow um, uh, um, deprived of nourishment. And what's striking about this uh, definition is that it's the exact opposite of the Buddha's classical definition of stream entry. Remember that Ananda's insight was what led him to what's called stream entry. The stream means the Eightfold Path, the way of life, which suggests uh, running water, which is the very opposite of something that is arid. And the stream entrant is the one who has has confidence in awakening, confidence in the way of life, confidence in the community, as opposed to doubt and hesitation. So clearly stream entry is the complete uh, opposite of barrenness and aridity. But there's another passage, uh, this is in the, the Sangyutta Nikaya, where the Buddha also addresses the um, idea of aridity. And he talks of it as threefold. He talks of the aridity of greed, the aridity of hatred, and the aridity of confusion or stupidity. Now these are what are called the three poisons or the three fires, and nirvana is understood as the, uh, as the absence of these three things, the absence of greed and hatred and confusion. But greed, hatred, and confusion are also called um, uh, states that are arid. They're barren. They're lifeless. Nothing grows. And this suggests very strongly um, the nirvana, and we'll come back to this in the next talk, that nirvana is actually um, not just a state of transcendence, or often we think of it as a rather cold, detached kind of uh, enlightenment, but actually nirvana is the opposite of aridity. Nirvana, therefore, is a ground uh, or a perspective on life from which one can flourish and grow and develop and emerge and unfold as a person, as a community.
There's another text. Um, this one is from the uh, Atakavaga, which is a text in the Sutta Nipata, which is one of the very oldest layers of the, of the Pali Canon. And this, too, uh, addresses the same uh, idea. And I'll read out. It's a verse. It's a four-line verse. Wrong-minded people do voice opinions, as do truth-minded people too. When an opinion is stated, the sage is not drawn in. There's nothing arid about the sage. The sage is the Muni, and although it sounds a bit like the, the Zen true person, the sage. Wrong-minded people do voice opinions, as do truth-minded people too. Now the point here is um, the fact that whether you are speaking the truth, or concerned about the truth, or whether you're confused and bewildered and you have completely crazy opinions, in both cases, you have the same problem. You have invested your self in a particular view or opinion. Whether it's true or false is kind of beside the point. The point is that an opinion in itself is something potentially uh, restrictive, constraining, and arid. So when an opinion is stated, the sage is not drawn in to a kind of endless... Uh, or maybe not endless, but a, a discussion or a debate or an argument as whether that statement is true or false. And this is a uh, this is a um, an element you find very much emphasised in the earliest strata of the Pali Canon, and of course you also find it very much in Zen. Uh, Zen is very much about not getting caught up in words and opinions. That very famous classic uh, phrase that possibly goes back to Bodhidharma, that Zen is a, uh, a direct transmission from mind to mind outside of letters and scriptures, or words and scriptures, or something like that. Uh, so again, it's suggesting that the very, even if the words happen to be the Buddhist Tripitaka, uh, or the, a great work of philosophy, that's all very well, but if you become preoccupied and attached and obsessed to some theory or view or opinion, you're actually missing what is central to the experience in Zen, which is an experience that's not definable or reducible to a particular view or opinion. So the sage is one who is uh, constantly on guard against falling prey to uh, seductive ideas or compelling pictures of the world that seem to explain everything or beliefs, religious beliefs or political beliefs that provide a kind of heartwarming consolation. So you have here um, uh, an understanding that aridity is not just about uh, being locked into your own you know, self-image. It's not just about being trapped in a kind of cycle of attachments or aversions or fears or confusions. That's one way of looking at aridity. Um, but it's also about getting caught or trapped in a view or an opinion. That's another kind of aridity that likewise um, sort of jams the mechanism, if you like. It um, keeps you stuck in one place. It's not uh, a position from which uh, you can really then subsequently uh, grow and flourish and, uh, as it were, proceed to live your life as though you were swimming in a stream. We find the same idea, funnily enough, in, um, in Wittgenstein. And there's quite a famous uh, uh, 
section from the Philosophical Investigations where he says, um, a picture held us captive and we could not get outside of it for it lay in our language and seemed to repeat it Sorry, for it lay in our language, and language seemed to repeat it to us inexorably. A picture held us captive. Now, a picture here obviously refers to a mental picture, an opinion or a view. It holds you captive in some way. And once you've been caught by it, uh, it's very difficult to get outside of it. And the reason for this is because these pictures are built into the very structure of language itself. And language keeps repeating and reinforcing these pictures that constitute it. Now Wittgenstein has, in some texts, been compared to a kind of latter-day Zen master. Uh, And I'm always a little bit wary of those kinds of comparisons. But I think here we do have a point. There seems to be a a strong, as Wittgenstein would have said, family resemblance Mm -hmm. between this, his idea here, and what we find in the Sutta Nipata, and possibly in the text uh, that, that I also cited concerning Ananda. Uh, The Buddha, too, seemed to have noticed how views and opinions keep us trapped, keep us stuck, whether they're truth, they're they're uttered by people who are concerned with the truth, or they're uttered by people who are all confused and messed up. So there's something arid and barren about holding on to any position, even a Buddhist position position or a Wittgensteinian position and here I think too we are touching something very central to the practice and the experience of Zen so again it's easy here to sort of go off onto a rather extreme uh, position and start maintaining that you can't have any views or opinions. All views and opinions are somehow you know, wrong to be avoided. But in saying that, you are actually simply declaring another opinion. All opinions lead to problems. That's an opinion too. You can't get out of it. We're, we're, we're embedded in this kind of language. And the Buddha was very, um, uh, I think, uh, was, was very aware of the, um, the double-sidedness of the term diti, view, opinion. Because remember the first um, step of the Eightfold Path, which is called the stream that you enter into when you engage with this way of life, it's called samaditi, usually rather poorly translated as right view. But it's the same word, view, opinion, except it's called samaditi. Samma um, doesn't really mean right. It, it means complete or whole or holistic or integrated. I'm not going to get into that here. But what it points to is how that the, the way of life that we follow is premised upon a particular way of looking at the world, a particular view. And yet this is clearly not the kind of view or opinion that is arid, that keeps us stuck and trapped and not going anywhere. In other words, things get a little bit complicated and ambiguous which is good because life's kind of like that. So I think it's not a question of abandoning views or holding a view that all views are wrong, but it's more a question of how do we live with views and opinions and beliefs. 
And I think it's more a question of learning to live with these things more lightly and also to live with them uh, more pragmatically. In other words, the question should be not is this belief true or is this belief false, but rather is this belief useful? Can this serve some purpose that could be of benefit? It doesn't mean that we have to then set it up as the last word, the ultimate truth of our personal metaphysics. But it means that we, we recognize that, let's say, for example, the view we probably all broadly believe that life emerged out of something like Darwinian natural selection. That's a view. I imagine there's very few people in this room who actually know that to be the case. But we all take it on board, and it turns out to be useful. It, it enables certain predictions to be made. It has a considerable explanatory power. But the danger is that it gets set up as a kind of religious dogma. And a lot of the, I don't want to mention names, but the, um, there are scientists in the world who treat Darwinian theory as a kind of religious belief. And they get very angry with people who don't agree with them. So the question is not that these beliefs... I think it's the wrong question to ask, you know, is it right, is it wrong? Is it true, is it false? It's more a question of, does it help us? Does it work? Is it useful? And that, I feel, is, again, very characteristic, um, particularly of early Buddhist thought. It's a pragmatism. It's, it's, it's about usefulness, uh, utility, if you like, um, that you know, it can help us in some way. So when the sage is not drawn in to a view, that doesn't mean that he might not find it appropriate to think that way under certain circumstances or conditions. It might be of use. It might be valuable. It might help someone. It might help him or her. So the point, therefore, is to, um, is to live lightly with views and opinions and to perhaps treat them with a certain irony, to realize they're simply part of the, the, the language, the system of imagery, communication that makes up our lives, and we can't actually, it's impossible to live without them but we must be careful of their seductive lure, particularly when their views or opinions that seem to make rather grand metaphysical or quasi-metaphysical claims. Now, it's at this point that we get to the subject of uh, the title of the talk. And I'm going to jump now um, but I don't think it's a jump. I think it actually um, follows rather organically from the early Pali texts to a 9th century uh, Zen record, the record of the Chinese uh, Chan or Zen master called Linchi. Um, in Japanese, he's known as Rinzai. In Korean, he's called Imje. And... Rinzai, or Zen, or Imje Son, as it's known in Korea, is the tradition in which Martin and I were trained. So Linchi is the founder of the particular school of Chan, or Zen, that we're practicing uh, on this retreat. Now, there's a... I'm going... Uh, throughout this retreat to refer to Linchi and to cite passages from his, um, from his record. But this is the passage I want to look at this evening. <clears throat> Here in this lump of red flesh, there is a true man with no rank. Constantly he goes in and out of the gates of your face. If there are any of you who don't know this for a fact, then look, look. And then a monk came forward and asked uh, Lynchy, 
But what's he like, this true person of no rank? Then Lynchy got down from his chair, seized hold of the monk and said, Speak, speak. The monk hesitated. Whereupon the master let him go, shoved him away and said, True man with no rank, what a dry shit stick. Now, I, I, I can't imagine for a moment that Lynchy was thinking about the Pali word keela, aridity. But what is characteristic of, of, of Chan and Zen is that the, 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 there's a, especially in the early records, it gets a little, it changes once you get into the, the song period. But basically what's striking about the early Zen records is their love of uh, concreteness and specificity and reference to actual things and objects in the world rather than ideas and abstractions and concepts. So to me, a dry shit stick is a very good image for an arid mind. Um, just as a sort of footnote, um, scholars, being scholars, um, have debated whether this means a dried piece of wood that is used for wiping your bottom in a toilet, pre-toilet paper, or if it refers simply to a, uh, a piece of shit, a turd. Um, I'll leave that as an open question. <laughs> But let's go back to this uh, uh, passage. Um, in this lump of red flesh, there is a true man of no rank. Um, in the instruction the other day, I mentioned this idea of true man, Chen Zhen, which is how the Chinese actually translated the word Arahant, possibly Tathagata, I don't know. But the, what Lin is trying to awaken in his audience, is the true person of no rank within each and every one of us. And the true person of no rank constantly goes in and out of the gates of your face, sometimes this is translated, goes in and out of the doors of your senses. But the point is that a true person of no rank is alive. And again, no rank suggests a person who's not identified with having a particular place or position either in society or in the world or wherever. He's not identified as being uh, me in a very recognizable and discernible way that could, that could serve as a kind of credential to give him or her some special standing or importance or as we saw in the earlier story um, a true person with no rank is not caught up in a kind of narcissism a true person of no rank doesn't see him or herself um, or their ego reflected in everything that's going on there's no aridity there there's nothing barren there's nothing stuck and what Lynchy wants his uh, uh, students to do, um, if they don't realize this, is to look. Look. In other words, this is not something that has to be explained. This is not some theory. What we're concerned with is something that's actually right here, now. Right here uh, at the heart of what you're experiencing in this moment. And, um, you know, this is a, a very, very classical Zen device. You know, the, 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 the Buddha is already right here. Dogen says that if you, if you sit in the right posture, you're already a Buddha. It's right here. And yet it's extremely difficult to see. We don't see it. There's another famous Zen expression which says that we spend our life like fish swimming through the ocean in search of water. 
In other words, well, it's obvious what it means. I don't have to explain it. (laughs) And so when the monk, probably with the best of intentions, comes up and asks for, for more clarification, please, sir, could you say that a little bit more about the true person in no rain? This so infuriates Lin Chi um, that he gets down from his chair, grabs the man, and says, speak, you know, speak. And the monk goes, uh, and he's chucked aside, and Lin Chi storms out of the room and says, true person with no rank, what a dry shit stick. In other words, what an arid person. Now, of course, you know, these sort of episodes have been told over hundreds of years and probably embellished in the telling. But there strikes me in this passage something very, um, very real. Uh, there's no bullshit here. There's no, um, uh, no reference back to some classical text like I do, you know, to sort of back up the point. Uh, this is... Um, <laughs> No, seriously, it's true. Uh, this is, but again, uh, the, again, we're stuck in this same circle of contradiction because this is now a text. This is now something that's passed down through a piece of literature. This is something that I'm reading from, in this case, my iPad. We're still in language. We can't get out of it, however much we rant and rail and object and shout and scream we're still telling a story and we're still learning through narrative through uh, example through ideas and through concepts okay let's stop there Uh, we have a few minutes if anyone would like to ask a question but don't ask anything about the true person of no rank. <laughs> Otherwise, I, yes? Um, yes, I just have a question. This business of, um, you know, the right view and having opinions, is it not covered in the um, Paranea Metta Sutta, the loving kindness, the end of that, doesn't um, the Buddha say um, something about um, <coughs> not holding on to fixed views, the pure hearty one, having clarity of vision? And it's interesting in the in the chanting book in the, the Thai forest tradition, somebody's crossed it. Was originally written holding on to false views, and it had been crossed out and changed it to fixed views. And it's, I think the word is um, is it Anilupa Gama Pali? Just that line of the Karaniyamata Sutta. I'm not. Sh- mm, yes. So I mean, is it is sort of sort of tying it together there? This business of the the first of the noble, uh, of the Eightfold Path, and what you were saying about the I holding on to fixed views. Well, again, you see, I'd, I'd, have to, I'd have to check the Pali. I'll see if I can do that um, to see what the term is. I suspect the term is simply ditty, view. Um, but I'll have to check that. It, it could be Micha Diti, which would be usually translated as wrong view, but I doubt it. I think the line was Diti and Anunupagama. Okay, so Diti. Oh, yeah, Anunupagama, we have not gone to views. Okay. It's just Diti, just view. Yeah. So it's interesting in, in when, in, when we do it in English, we, we feel a need to somehow modify it. False views, fixed views. Yeah. But actually, neither of those words are in the Pali, false or fixed. We don't seem to be able to sort of say, actually, the problem lies in views. Uh, we want to, we, if false views, it's easy to, you know, not, you know, to say, oh, yeah, I don't have false views. But that, I don't think, is the point at all. And the, uh, the, um, the Sutta Nipata citation is, is wrong-minded people and truth-minded people voice opinions and views. It's not saying there's good views and bad views. And again, it does beg the question what summa means. Right view is frankly the wrong translation. <laughs> we have to... Um, and it is. I mean, that's not what the word means. Summa means complete or whole. And for some reason, translators don't want to say that. 
it's more it's 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 not so clear what it might mean but that's precisely i think what's interesting how is a view complete or whole as soon as you say right or wrong then you're into the business of does this view correspond to reality or not uh uh-uh. uh that's not what is going on there at all um but yes i think the phrase you uh, cited points to this same tension of the person who is no longer caught in views let's say uh, gamma i'll look it up i think it's gone to views or or, or resorts to views um, uh, has somehow compromised their own inner clarity let's say but i think it goes more than that and that's why i so like this notion of aridity in the pali because it suggests it's a kind of a a barrenness it's and that suggests very strongly uh, that um views holding on to views even good buddhist right views keep you stuck they prevent you from really living fully and the metta sutta the sutta on loving kindness is of course an affirmation about engaging with the suffering of the world that's what it's all about and to engage with the suffering of the world is is inhibited or is somehow is held back by holding certain views opinions beliefs that's going to get in the way of your ability to really reach out to those in pain you don't do that because you believe something you do that because you cannot but respond to the suffering of the other yes yes uh, this is also about views and opinions i'm not even sure i can get the words right um but earlier today i had the experience of could you speak up again uh, earlier today i had the experience of um seeing I guess I call it a view mm. or a belief as it were uncovered before my eyes but I didn't know beforehand that I held that view or that thought mm. so I guess I could call it an unconscious view mm. mm-hmm. so it clearly wasn't something I had reasoned out or discussed with anybody yeah and were you to ask me to describe it now i don't think i could because mm. it went by so fast but what i was aware of was that this unconscious view whatever mm. the way of putting it had actually had an enormous influence mm-hmm. on me and uh seeing it was something really quite um shocking in the way of energizing and very surprising mm. and it made me wonder how many more mm. <laughs> of those might lurk uh, within without my mm. realizing it and uh, I, I, mm-hmm. i suppose I, i just wondered is is that is that also what's meant by a view or an opinion something Yeah, unconscious mm-hmm. is a psychological term. Um yeah, it is. Uh that's actually a rather important point. Uh when we use the word view in English, we tend to think of something that we've r- arrived at through a certain amount of reasoning. We've consciously adopted a view or it's something we've learned or been taught by our parents, by our religion, by our education system, by our professors or whatever but the word view as used in uh, in the buddhist traditions and this is all the buddhist traditions um it, it acknowledges that that's part of it yes we do that's one aspect of views but the really pernicious views are those of which we are not conscious i uh, think sorry yeah I think what I wanted to say was it became clear to me how this view mm. that was uncovered it had developed as it were of itself straight out of emotion. Mhm. 
and so uh, it, it wasn't it was not thought through or filtered by mm -hmm. my consciousness oh exactly yeah it yeah, came yeah. out of emotion into mm -hmm. a thought a, a view no, that's fairly more or less how um, it's understood in these uh, in Buddhist psychology. That, um, uh, for example, the view of self is not something we learn or something we adopt, um, but at root, it is uh, it's instinctive. Um, in Tibetan, I don't know whether I don't think they make this distinction in Pali. In Tibetan, they distinguish between. Um, uh, they call some views they call gundak, which means uh, fabricated or manufactured. In other words, views that we consciously and deliberately take on board, theorize and so on. And views that they call hlenkye, which means innate. We're born with them, literally. They're born, they're inne, innate, instinctive. And so what's being understood here? And what I think the Buddha is, is primarily concerned with is not the other religious views and opinions of his time, although he does address those, but what he's really concerned with are those uh, instinctive, innate uh, perceptions we have of ourselves, of others, of the world, uh, that are inborn. Um, and these are not really... Um, uh, these can't really be we can't argue ourselves out of them we can't reason our way out um, uh, because they're, 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 they're sort of built into the probably built into the brain stem or something they're, and they have as their originally they probably served some sort of survival advantage I suspect they're biological in origin and um, you know, I think like the instinctive notion we have of me, uh, that sense of a kind of isolate, permanent me, ego, whatever. And so the, um, the practice of, uh, the, the way to work with these kinds of instinctive views is to train oneself through this rather long and boring business called meditation to, to, to repeatedly um, uh, uh, observe and uh, pay attention to one's experience in a non-theoretical uh, way as it unfolds moment to moment. So when we do Vipassana meditation, for example, uh, we just notice that the body, the feelings, the perceptions, the mind are changing, for example. And we might say, well, you know, I know that. But you don't really know that. That's the problem. You don't behave as though you're impermanent. You behave as though you'll live forever. And so the point of, of, of med meditative awareness and attention is to cultivate um, over time um, a kind of counter-intuition, if you wish, um, that brings the sense of impermanence, let's say, uh, more and more into the domain of consciousness. So it becomes a felt sense rather than a Buddhist theory. And there you can begin, as it were, not to negate the instinctive opinions you might hold, but to learn to recognize them when they occur and to learn how to live more and more from a perspective that's not determined by them. And in that sense, um, you uh, achieve, as it were, a freedom from their stranglehold, even though they might still be operative. They probably will. I suspect even for the Buddha, these instinctive uh, feelings would have been there. That's, he's a human being. Um, but you, don't, you can find a way to first understand and recognize them, as you described, but more importantly to uh, cultivate an alternative way of perceiving and experiencing and being conscious that will become the foundation from which you then learn to lead your life. But that's a topic um, that I hope to address in the next talk when we look at the idea of nirvana. I'm going to stop here.
Uh, we have 15 minutes before the final sit, so please uh, either walk or rest or go to the loo, whatever needs to be done, and we'll meet back here at quarter to nine. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.